John chapter 9, the last three verses, and we saw there was some judgment that Jesus was pointing out. <clears throat> he says, for judgment, I'm coming into this world. And he went on to explain that, that just as he had said back in John chapter 3, verse 19, that <clears throat> judgment is coming to the world. He says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And he confirmed that at the end of John chapter 9. <clears throat> but he makes a kind of a strange transition in chapter 10 <clears throat> because he immediately starts talking about people entering in by the door. Uh, and we're going to read the first six verses here, <clears throat> John chapter 10. If you want to read along with me, I'm reading in the King James. You can follow along in whatever translation you have, I believe, in the pews there we have NIV. <clears throat> Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So we're not talking about sheep right now. We're talking about either the real shepherd or a false shepherd, a robber, a thief. <clears throat> to him, the porter, that's an old word for the doorkeeper, to him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, that is the shepherd, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They follow him because they know his voice. <clears throat> and a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were, which he spoke unto them. Well, that's not real surprising. I'm not sure I understand it either, or at least at first glance. It's part of my problem is that I'm not a shepherd in the Middle East. <clears throat> so some of this stuff I have to look up or I have to find out. What are you talking about? <clears throat> Another little problem we have is as we read on down through this chapter, we're going to see the next thing. He says, is that he is the door to the sheep. The first one, he says, the door into the sheepfold. The next one is the door of the sheep. That's not the same. Um, that just at a casual reading, you think, what are you saying? First you said you got to enter by the door, now you say you are the door. <clears throat> and the next thing after that, he says he's the good shepherd, starting in verse 11. So two of the great I am passages in the book of John or in this chapter, we're going to deal with both of them, but not today. Today we're going to talk about what in the world is this door into the sheepfold, and who is the porter that, <clears throat> or the doorkeeper that either opens or doesn't open to someone coming to the door. So evidently we've already seen that the door into the sheepfold is not the same as the door of the sheep. This door of the sheep starts in verse 7, and he says, I am the door of the sheep. <clears throat> but maybe the first question then we ought to be asking is, what is this door? The door into the sheepfold. And then right along with that, who's the porter? Who's the, <clears throat> who's the doorkeeper? <clears throat> so if we ask first, what's the door into the sheepfold? Jesus is declaring himself, or is about to declare himself, the, the good shepherd. He's... he's already beginning to declare himself to be the Messiah, the one that 
Israel's been waiting for all these years. John the Baptist already declared him to be the Messiah. John the Baptist pointed him out clear back in chapter 1, verse 29. He says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now they were completely familiar with the lambs being sacrificed, the Passover lamb especially. I love that one because they took the blood of that little lamb, they dipped a bundle of hyssop in it, which is just a weed that grows there, and they smacked it on the lintel and the two doorposts. And when you do that motion, you realize that these people 1,500 years before the cross were huddled under the same blood of the cross that you and I are. The Romans hadn't even invented crucifixion yet. And there's people today that try to say, well, it wasn't a cross. It was a, it was a gibbet, really. Then how come Jesus told them to do this? Because that's what he told them to do at the Passover, the original Passover. They were to strike that blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. Placing one's faith in Jesus' blood sacrifice at the cross is how we enter in to our relationship with him so that we can be saved. In fact, he says the day you believed in him, the day you trusted in him for your salvation, that day you have eternal life, now and forever. Not only that, he says you'll never ever be condemned by God from that point forward. You're out of trouble, period, permanently. And the final thing he says, you've crossed over from death into life. And again, that's a permanent transaction. The, the, the Greek there is, <clears throat> is perfect tense, which means it happened in a past point in time, but it has a permanent effect for the future. <clears throat> I like to use the analogy if I try to turn in a coupon at the store and they look at it and say, I'm sorry, sir, that coupon is expired. They don't say it has expired. They don't say it was expired. They say it is expired. Just now? No, no, it happened two weeks ago. It went ex expiring expiration date was two weeks ago. But it is permanently expired. That's one of the rare occasions where we use perfect tense in our language. It means it happened in the past, but it's, it's never coming back. And Jesus said you've crossed over from death into life. You, you can't go back. You're permanently his. <clears throat> so what is this door into the sheepfold? It's not talking about how we get in. He's saying it's the difference between how the good shepherd gets in and how a thief might get in, a robber. <clears throat> so since he's getting ready to declare himself to be the Messiah, it struck me to wonder how many false messiahs have there been? Now, I don't have any way to find out how many there were before Jesus showed up. There had been some. There was a guy... Um, well, there was a number that, that claimed to be, you know, the, the new leader of Israel, and in each case they ended up dead. <clears throat> but since Jesus' time, there's been 50 well-known claims to be the Messiah. Some of them are names you'll recognize. Um, some are people we'd never heard of because they happened, you know, in the 3rd century, the 5th century, the 7th century, or whenever. Uh, people would show up and claim to be the second coming of Christ. Huh. Interesting. <clears throat> what these fellows all had in common is they did not fulfill the prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies, regarding who the Messiah had to be. None of them did. Jesus did. They did not. <clears throat> so the times when somebody has declared themselves to be the second coming of Christ... Some of you may remember the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. He claimed to be the second coming of Christ. Okay. 
some of you may remember a guy down in southern Oregon in Grants Pass, I think his name was Roy Masters, who kind of was playing with that and telling people that he was sinless and so forth and claiming to be somebody. I'm not sure if he ever came out and said he was the second coming of Christ or not. <clears throat> but none of them fulfilled the prophecies. What prophecies? Well, <clears throat> there was a whole bunch of prophecies in the Old Testament to identify this Messiah when he showed up. One of them was given us clear back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When sin first entered into the world, God gave a promise to the people there saying that there was this person coming who would be called the seed of the woman, born of woman but not man. She, he, they, this person's going to have a human mother but not a human father. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman is going to undo what Satan had accomplished there in the Garden of Eden when he had crashed God's whole program with the people. When humans had fallen into sin and become <clears throat> sinners by nature and by choice. We didn't hear much more about him for a while until Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And a lot of people have mocked that, saying, well, you just don't understand the Hebrew. The Hebrew word there is Alma, and it just means a young girl. Yeah, but anybody that was called by that name in the Hebrew society was a virgin, too, because she was younger than marriageable age. But when the Septuagint was translated by the Jews who wanted their children to understand, and they were, they were losing the Hebrew language, and they spoke Greek as their native language, they translated the, the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. It had 70 translators that worked on this. They chose the word Parthenon instead of Alma, in the place of Alma. Alma is the Hebrew word. The word Parthenon is a Greek word, and it strictly means virgin. It's not even gender specific. There's another word that means a young girl. They didn't use that. They knew what was intended, and they put it down the way it was meant. They used the word Parthenon. By the way, that's the same word that God uses in Revelation to describe these 144,000 virgin young men as Parthenon. <clears throat> and it's the same word that, that Mary used regarding herself that she was a virgin, she was Parthenon, okay? So that was one of the distinguishing factors that had to be there, and God called it out clear back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Okay, there's others. <clears throat> there's about 300 of them, actually. We're only going to go through a few of them, because as you know, I tend to be rather time-consuming when I start going through Scripture. <clears throat> Just by witness of that, we're only in John chapter 10, and we've been in in the book of John since June of 2021. So, where he was born was called out. Okay, Sun Man Moon couldn't claim to be born in Bethlehem, right? No, he wasn't. He had, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says he had to be born in Bethlehem. Not, not just any Bethlehem, specifically Bethlehem of Judea, Bethlehem Ephrata, the place where Joseph's wife, Rachel, was buried. <clears throat> but along with that the scripture also said that he was going to be called out of Egypt 
God said, I'll call my son out of Egypt. And in another place, it said his son was to be called a Nazarene. Wait a minute. Is he from Bethlehem? Is he from Egypt? Or is he from Nazareth? Which is it? Well, we've got to find out, huh? Because all of those prophecies have to come true on the same guy. His lineage. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was a descendant of Jacob. He was a descendant of Judah. He was a descendant of David. Of course, these are all in a line. If I said he's a descendant of David, he's automatically a descendant of the others. The problem with that is the prophecies pre-existed any of these. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter uh, 22, verse 18, we see the prophecy that through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed. And there's others that talk about his seed specifically. <clears throat> uh, it was prophesied then, but it was prophesied regarding Judah in Genesis chapter 49, which is several hundred years later, uh, being the descendant of David, Jacob was prophesied over and over, but one of the classy ones is in Numbers chapter 24. If you remember the story of the, the prophet Balaam, who we remember as a false prophet, he was a real prophet. He just sold out and became a traitor to God's people. So he's only remembered for that. But within his prophecy regarding Israel, he said a star would rise out of Jacob, that a scepter would rise out of Jacob, that, that this coming king, this Messiah, was going to come from Jacob, Israel. <clears throat> he prophesied the truth, but he sold out. If you want to read that story, go to Numbers chapter 24. Said he's a descendant of David, Second Samuel chapter seven, Luke chapter one, verse thirty-two. But he could not be of the lineage of a fellow named Coniah, which is short for Jeconiah, which is a different form of the Hebrew name Jehoiachin. <clears throat> In Jeremiah chapter twenty-two, God puts a curse on that man. Well, what's so special about that? Well, he was one of David's offspring and he was the king. And one would think there's this kingly line coming down through the years. Well, that guy was so bad that God said nobody from his lineage is ever going to sit on the throne in Israel again. Guess what lineage Joseph came from? Yeah, Joseph was from Jeconiah. If Jesus was from, Je from Joseph, then Jesus couldn't be the king. But he wasn't. See, that's where the virgin birth becomes important again. Because he was David's offspring through Mary by blood. Legally, he was seen as Joseph's son, who was in line with the king. Actually, Mary was too. <clears throat> so he couldn't be from that lineage, but he had to be from David. <clears throat> he's also called to be the son of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 35 says that he's going to be seen as the son of God. <clears throat> we already saw that he was virgin-born, both from uh, Genesis 3 and from Isaiah 7. Um, we can infer that he was born into poverty, says he comes humbly, but he arrives as the king, but riding on a donkey, not some big white horse. <clears throat> comes riding on a donkey in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He was to live a sinless life, according to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. There's many others. I'm not talking about this is the only passage. He heals the sick, sets free the captive, proclaims the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 35. He heals the blind, he heals lepers. 
How do I know? Because in, he, in Psalm 103, verse 3, it says he heals all their diseases. So nobody that came to Jesus for healing during his ministry on earth went away not healed. Some of them got more than they bargained for. I mean, the blind man we talked about two weeks ago, he didn't ask to be healed. He didn't even know Jesus was there. He'd never heard of him. Jesus went out of his way, picked him up off the pavement, and sent him off to the pool of Siloam to wash the mud out of his eyes. Okay? <clears throat> said he heals all his diseases, Psalm 103, verse 3. Said that he was going to be crucified, that his hands and feet would be pierced. And it goes on to describe in quite a lot of detail the crucifixion in Psalm 22. That's where we get the, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was quoting that psalm. <clears throat> and if you read that psalm, it's clearly a description of the crucifixion. And it says specifically that his hands and feet were pierced. See, if he died by stoning instead of by crucifixion, he couldn't be the Messiah. Part of the description, part of the prophecies included the fact that he had to die this unusual death. The Jews were supposed to execute their criminals by stoning. That's how they killed Stephen. They, they thought he was a blasphemer. He wasn't. So they, they rocked him to sleep. When people got stoned back then, it didn't involve illegal substances. It involved rocks. <clears throat> but if he had died any other way, if they'd hung him, for instance, or, or stuck him through with a sword or a spear or chopped off his head, he wouldn't have been the Messiah. He had to be crucified. He had to die in a, mean, a means that the Romans used for torturing criminals to death and that they didn't invent until about two centuries before there. Starting to see a picture here, huh? He died with the criminals, Isaiah 53, 9, but in the same verse it says he's buried with the rich. Well, that's not what you did with the criminals. The, the whole idea of the the, the garbage pit south of Jerusalem that they called Gehenna was that not only they threw all their rotten garbage there, that's where they threw the bodies of the criminals. They were not to be buried. They threw them there to get eaten up by bugs and, and jackals and whatnot. So he died with the criminals. Those are criminals being executed with him. But he was buried with the rich. That seems a paradox all by itself. But that's what happened. The Joseph of Arimathea came and with Nicodemus took his body from the cross and wrapped him up and buried him in his own tomb. Joseph was the kind of rich where you can hire somebody to get a hammer and chisel and cut you out a tomb out of the rock. It was carved out of solid rock. And that's the tomb that Jesus was buried in. It was a rich man's tomb. <clears throat> he stayed dead for three days and three nights. The prophecy was in Jonah chapter 1. Verse 17, <clears throat> we wouldn't have seen it as a prophecy. We just would have seen that jo Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus pointed out that that was a prophecy concerning himself. He says, this, an evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign, and no sign shall be given to them but that of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah remained in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man remain in the heart of the earth, the place of the dead, Sheol. He was in the good half of Sheol. It was called paradise at the time. For three days and three nights. Okay. <clears throat> and finally, that he was resurrected. Psalm 16, verse 10. 
says you'll not suffer your soul, your Holy One to see corruption. You'll not suffer my soul to stay in hell. And Sheol is the place of the dead. doesn't mean the place of punishment. It was David talking, but if you read the whole context there in Psalm 16, it's not talking about David. He says, the Lord said unto my Lord. <clears throat> He's talking about somebody else, not himself. He says, you'll not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Jesus didn't stay there long enough for his body to rot. Okay? Remember I told you a few weeks back that there was a guy back in the, oh, I think in the 50s, who claimed to be God. He lived in Chicago, I think. Called himself Father Divine. And as I had read about him years ago, I remember that he claimed, he told his followers, he was dying. He told his followers, don't bury my body because in three days I'm going to rise again. Well, when the police finally moved in to take away the body from those people who were not permitting him to be buried, they had to wear gas masks. Okay, it got pretty nasty. When, when Jesus died, he wasn't allowed to stay in the grave long enough to rot. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, who he raised from the dead in John chapter 11, we're not there yet. I promise we'll get there. <clears throat> John chapter 11, he'd been in for four days, and the people said, he's going to stink by now, Lord, don't open up that tomb. Jesus said, I told you if you believed in me, you'd see the glory of God. So when they pried off that rock and Jesus called Lazarus out to come out, I guess hopping like a potato sack race because he was bound hand and foot with the, with the grave windings. Jesus had to tell him, cut him loose. But he came out all tied up. I'd like to have seen that. I'm not sure I could have stood it, but I'd like to have seen that. <clears throat> but the scripture said he was going to be resurrected. Sun Young Moon's been dead for a while. No resurrection. Jesus was physically, bodily, visibly resurrected and visited with a whole bunch of people before he ascended. So what does it mean to enter in by the door? <clears throat> it means that Jesus had to fulfill all these prophecies. Now, I only listed about a dozen or so, but the reality is there were about 300 that all had to come true on the same person. So all the people that claimed to be the Messiah except for Jesus, don't, don't come anyplace close. They don't come anyplace close. They might say nice words. They might look good. They might maybe even do some miraculous things. But the fact is, if they are not fulfilling these prophecies and more, they're a thief and a robber. He says so. <clears throat> now, a lot of people accuse, well, they're kind of self fulfilling prophecies you know he just kind of went through life and by de design fulfilled all these really well let's talk about that for a minute how many people here picked your place of birth oh you didn't huh it's funny i didn't either in fact i've often thought i should have been more careful picking out who my parents were you know no we don't get to pick those kind of things in fact there was a, a story about some famous guy he might have been a movie star or some famous person that when it turned out he was born in you know Muleshoe, Muleshoe, Oklahoma or someplace, somebody who was meeting them and thinking they were just meeting this wonderful celebrity, they said, why were you born in a place like that? He says, well, I just wanted to be close to my mother. <laughs> you don't get to choose where you're born. You don't get to choose who your mom and dad are 
or who your grandpa was. You know, if, if you got a good gene pool, cool. You know, I might wish I was seven feet tall, but I'm not. Actually, I'm kind of glad I'm not. I have a hard enough time fitting in cars as it is. <clears throat> but clear back in Genesis chapter 3, God predicted the birth, and it had to be a virgin birth. Okay, how would Jesus arrange that by self-fulfilling prophecy? Can't. Uh, the fact that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, there's a lot of kids born in Bethlehem. The problem is Joseph and, Je Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. That wasn't where they lived. They lived off in Nazareth. Bethlehem was in Judea. Nazareth was up north in, in Galilee. That, there wasn't any place close to where they lived. So if you just looked at the, you know, the circumstances, you'd say, well, he's obviously not the right one because he's not going to be born in Bethlehem. <clears throat> well, God arranged a road trip for them. Uh, the, the Caesar at that time decreed that there was going to be a census, and everybody had to go back to their ancestral home. Well, that forced Joseph and Mary, bad timing. She's getting ready to have a baby to make a road trip all the way to Bethlehem, and the night they showed up, she gave birth. They showed up just in time, see, to be at the right place, at the right time, born into the right family. How would you do self-fulfilling prophecy on that? Um, you know, unless it's divinely appointed, it couldn't happen. In fact, you know, that thing I said about that he's going to be called out of Egypt and he's going to be called a Nazarene. Well, I'm starting to get a hint about the Nazarene things because where they're from is Nazareth. And that's what a Nazarene is, somebody from Nazareth. <coughs> Not to be confused with a Nazarite, which is someone who's taken the Nazarite vow. Well, what about that Egypt thing? Well... Shortly after this, when they hadn't left Bethlehem yet, a couple of years later apparently, uh, King Herod decided to kill all the baby boys in that whole district, hoping he could kill off this person who was born king of the Jews. How did he know about him? Well, there's these wise guys, that, oh, wise men. Yeah, these wise men that came from the east and told him, yeah, there's this fellow born just recently from king of the Jews. So when? He says, well, we saw his star almost two years ago. Cool. He sent soldiers down to kill all the babies. God warned Joseph and, and Mary, and they skedaddled before the soldiers showed up. Where'd they go? Egypt. And after Herod died, it says God called them back. Oh, so God called his son out of Egypt. Huh. So all three happened. Because when they came back, they didn't go back to Bethlehem. They went back to Nazareth. That's where Joseph had had his business. That's where he lived. And Jesus grew up there being called a Nazarene. See how, how these, all these prophecies are lining up by God's direction? There's no self-fulfilling prophecies there. Jesus didn't go through life saying, well, let's see, which, which prophecy can I fulfill today? Now, there's a few that it says he did this, that this prophecy might be fulfilled. And people complain about that. They might say, well, you know, I look at this and it says right here that he did this so he could fulfill this prophecy. Well, yeah, that's true. He did. But I could want to, let's say, heal the sick, raise the dead, heal lepers, um, turn water into wine, whatever. I can want that all day, but it's not going to happen because I don't have the power. I don't have the authority. And Jesus did have to do those things. If he wasn't who he said he was, he couldn't have fulfilled any of those prophecies. 
you know, just show up in Jerusalem on a certain day and say certain words? Yeah, he could do that, and they would have killed him. They tried to as it was, remember. And he miraculously escaped them. He just walked through their midst, and they couldn't do anything. They couldn't touch him. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. He was the one in charge, not them. <clears throat> I could want to fulfill prophecies. I mean, Abraham wanted to fulfill a prophecy, so he and Sarah cooked up an idea, whereas, where, and it was Sarah's idea, actually, that she would give her slave, Hagar, to Abraham, and they would fulfill the prophecy that Abraham was going to have a son. Not a good idea. You see, that son that they produced that way, his name was Ishmael. And all of the Arabs of today claim Ishmael as their father. So the, the worst enemies that Israel has today are the people from somebody trying to fulfill prophecy on their own authority. Okay, You don't want to go there. Let God fulfill prophecy. So Jesus did exactly what God called him to do. He was fulfilling the prophecies because that's who he was. <clears throat> but what's this thing about a porter, a doorkeeper? Well, I was originally taught that the doorkeeper was John the Baptist because he recognized Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he recognized him as being the Son of God. And he recognized him by the Holy Spirit coming and landing on him as a dove and, and repeatedly pointed him out as the Lamb of God. And I think that's probably, in terms of human doorkeepers, it is John the Baptist. Um, there's other people people have named, but I think probably among the humans is John the Baptist. But other people have correctly argued that, well, but John the Baptist couldn't do anything if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's true. I mean, that's true for everybody and everything, that God's the ultimate answer. That there are people that, in fact, J. J. Vernon McGee says flat out that the porter, the, the doorkeeper, is the Holy Spirit because he's the one that opened the way for Jesus. He's the one that opened the hearts of the people and so forth. All right, I can go for that. But I think it's important to remember that John the Baptist was called to be the forerunner for Jesus. He was called to be the one to say, uh, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his ways straight. He was the one who went into Jerusalem and preached the gospel of the kingdom before Jesus got started. In that sense, yes, he was the doorkeeper. <clears throat> but regardless of who the doorkeeper is, and I think it matters, see, there's people that say, ha, you're missing the point here, Chet. The next thing, when he says, I'm the good shepherd, that's the point of this chapter. So just skip the first six verses. That doesn't mean anything. Sorry, I don't buy that. If it was important enough for Jesus to say it, it's important. Period. I don't like skipping things. I don't like pretending like, well, there's nothing to see here, folks. Just move along. No. If Jesus said it, it's important. So I think I need to think about that. Whoever the porter is, whoever the doorkeeper is, I mean, I, I can go say it's God the Father for that matter. There's some people that said it was Moses. I don't think it was Moses. I mean, Moses is in a very distant way connected in that his prophecies and the in, the, in Genesis, pointed to him, pointed to the Messiah. Uh, the law, which came through Moses, pointed people to the necessity of a Savior because, as we've been studying in Wednesday night studies, the law, the purpose of the law was to make sin exceedingly sinful, as we read in Romans 7, verse 13, uh, so that we would see that we have to have a Savior. 
the, the, the law points out that I'm a lost sinner, that I, I've got to have someone, I've got to have a redeemer, I've got to have a savior. So in that sense, yes, I could say that Moses pointed people towards Jesus, but the connection is just a little bit too distant, and I think the human doorkeeper probably is referring to John the Baptist, but ultimately the divine doorkeeper, yes, it's Holy, the Holy Spirit. He's the one that opens the way for Jesus. However, none of these potential doorkeepers, porters, would open to someone who was not the good shepherd. Why? Because he had to come by way of the door. And what is the door? The door is the fulfilled prophecies. The door is the fulfilled prophecies. The, the prophetic record showed who this person had to be. If you came by that way, then you're the right person. If you didn't come by that way, then you're a fake, you're an imposter, you're a liar, you're a thief, a robber, a murderer. You see, fulfilled prophecies throughout the Bible, those are the credentials of God. In Isaiah, oh, chapter 43, I think, or 42, he says, I'm the one who tells you the end from the beginning. Who else can do that? I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens. Why? Because I know the whole story. It's my story. His story. He's the one that can tell us the end from the beginning, and there isn't anyone else that can do that. That's why in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 16, when it says that somebody claims to be speaking for God, if what they say is going to happen doesn't happen, not only you don't follow them, you kill them. You're going to claim to be a prophet of God. You better be 100% accurate because the, the penalty for lying and saying you're speaking for God is death. <clears throat> Fulfilled prophecies are the credentials of God. They're what let us know that God is God. That le they're what let us know that the, those who speak for God are speaking for God. If they fulfill the, the pro if the prophecies they give are fulfilled, and they are the pedigree and the divine authority of Christ, everything he did was fulfilling God's word to the letter. <clears throat> I had a guy one time say, "So, did Jesus believe in reincarnation?" He was studying a book by Edgar C about Edgar Casey at that time. It was I was on a commercial fishing boat. This was the skipper and. It's just the two of us. And he says, did Jesus believe in reincarnation? And I was a brand new believer. I've been a believer for about a year. I said, no. And he said, well, then why did he say John the Baptist was Elijah? And I didn't know enough theology to, to say, well, he was, came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. No, I didn't, I didn't know that. I looked out the porthole of the vessel we were in. I was praying fast, asking God, you've got to give me an answer. And it came instantly, and I almost started laughing because it was such a cool answer. I looked around, and I said, well, to be reincarnated, you have to die and come back in a different body, right? He says, right. And I said, Elijah never died. And he shut his mouth and went back to reading his book. <laughs> I don't know why I even knew that Elijah didn't die. You know, like I said, I was a brand-new believer, but I remembered that. And I said, can't be in reincarnation. Elijah never died. I didn't know the rest of the story. I couldn't tell him anything else. But God's, God's the one that declared what that door is. He gave these hundreds of prophecies concerning the Messiah that all had to come true on one person. This isn't a smorgasbord 
where you get to to choose which things you're going to fulfill. You had to fulfill them all. You know, they, they, they couldn't just say, well, I'm going to do this part and that part. <clears throat> but see, the next verse says that when the porter does open to the shepherd, that the shepherd begins calling out his sheep. It says, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them. He leads them, that means. <clears throat> and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. And this parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spoke unto them. And I can see why they didn't understand. There's things I didn't, had to study out to figure out over the years what that was even talking about. Uh, for instance, that's not how you lead sheep here. You got a flock of sheep here. You got a probably an ATV to follow them around, and and a dog to push them where you want them to go. You didn't walk out in front of them, calling them by name, but they do there. I watched a video of a little kid. I think they're actually. I think what the video was actually about was the slingshot that he's using because he used the same kind of sling that David used. But in the conversation, they're working through an interpreter, <clears throat> a little Palestinian boy, looked like he might be eight or 10 years old. He's taking care of his father's, looked like a mixture of sheep and goats to me, but I, I'm no expert. Uh, the, the interpreter, through the interpreter, the interviewer asked him, how many sheep or goats or whatever they were, how many do you have? And the kid gives this really cheerful shrug, like, I don't know. And the interpreter explained, he may not know how to count. So the next question the interviewer asked through the interpreter is, well, if you don't know how many you got, how are you going to know if one turns up missing? And the kid looked at him like he was an idiot. He says, I know them all. If one's missing or if there's something wrong with one of them, I'm going to know immediately. I know them all. I loved it. I loved it. You see, they look at sheep different than we do. It was obvious to that child what the answer was because he knew his flock. It was not obvious to that interviewer, nor would it be to me, because we don't think of sheep that way. I can barely well tell one sheep from another unless they got some kind of marking. Nowadays, they put spray paint on their, I was going to say fur. They call that wool, don't they? <clears throat> so that you can say, yeah, there's old number 27. We've got to watch her. She'll take off on you. No, he, he knew them by name, every one of them individually. And it says that the sheep follow the shepherd's voice. Now, two different friends of mine at two different times told me that they had gone to Israel, taken a trip to the Holy Land, and as they were moving around there, they're in a taxi or some other kind of vehicle, and they got stopped on the road because they came to an intersection, and two flocks of sheep were crossing the intersection in opposite directions. And they thought, oh, great. These two flocks of sheep are going to get all mixed up with each other. It will be hours before they get them all sorted out. No, they weren't. The two shepherds greeted each other cordially and just kept walking, calling their sheep. And they led their flocks through the other flock. And the sheep never paid a bit of attention to the other shepherd. They followed the voice of their shepherd. And the two flocks flowed right through each other. And in a matter of minutes, there was two separate flocks going two different directions. There was no disturbance, no chaos, no clutter, no nothing. 
hardly any resistance. The sheep knew how to get out of each other's way. And then, excuse me, excuse me, I'm following him. Yeah, stay out of my way. And they went right through. We're to follow the shepherd's voice. That's what sheep are supposed to do. And then there, that's what they do. I love that because I've never been there, probably never will be there. But these two different people, completely unrelated to one another, had seen the exact same spectacle and had exactly the same feeling of, oh, no, we're never going to get out of here on time. You got 100 sheep all mixed up together. How are you going to sort them out? No problem. Just keep talking to them. Keep leading. Keep calling. Jesus calls us, and we're expected to know his voice and to follow him. He came by the authority of his word. He came by the door of fulfilled prophecy. And we're to listen to his voice through his word. And in prayer, Bible study, Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says that the written word of God is to be the light in our lives until the Lord himself comes back. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto, speaking of the scripture, whereunto you do well that you take heed until when? Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. He's talking about focusing the light of God's word on your life and listening to the voice of God calling you through his word and through prayer and through the teaching that you're receiving. But this is how we learn to know his voice to the extent that the voice of a stranger, a false teacher, a false messiah, someone preaching something on the internet that you listen to and think, whoa, I never heard that before. Well, is it the voice of God calling you or is it somebody else? If you don't know the the Lord's voice, you're not going to know. How are you going to get to know his voice? By spending time in his word and in prayer, but allowing him to speak to you until you get a a firm idea of this is what God sounds like. Once in a while, somebody will come to me with some teaching that I think, huh, that sounds off. And I can't put my finger on why. I think I told you a while back, a guy was telling about all these different ways that a church can raise money. A, that's not what we're here for. Money's the last thing on our minds. But he said, I, I, I thought the things he was suggesting sounded kind of repugnant to me. They sounded like Madison Avenue. And I said so. And he said, well, the bottom line is, Chad, it works. Well, he's an older guy. He's old enough to be my dad. And he was supposedly a Bible teacher and whatnot. So I didn't say anything more, but it was still bugging me, and I thought about it, and hours later, God put his finger on what was bugging me. That's not the bottom line. The bottom line isn't whether something works. The bottom line is, does it honor God? Did did Abraham's and, and Sarah's decision to impregnate Hagar, did that honor God? No. Did it work, produce him a son? Well, yeah, if you want to call it that. It produced the worst enemy that his real son was ever going to have. The bottom line is not whether something works. The bottom line is, does it honor God? Does it in agreement with his word? So human shepherds have the same responsibility to enter by the door of the sheepfold as Jesus expressed. Jesus had to fulfill all the prophecies. A human shepherd who's doing what God tells him to has to feed the flock on the whole counsel of God. You don't get to do hobby horse doctrines where This is my favorite thing to teach, so that's what I teach all the time. You don't get to do that. You notice I don't skip very much. That's because I don't feel free to skip very much. If Jesus said it was important, it's important. Now, if I skip something because I want to teach something else and I'm coming back to that, that's different. But I'm not going to skip it because, eh, that's not important. 
No, it is important. I'm responsible to teach the whole counsel of God. We don't get a smorgasbord here either. Jesus didn't have a smorgasbord where he could just, you know, pick a little helping of this kind of prophecy and a little helping of that kind of prophecy and then proclaim himself the Messiah. He had to fulfill it all. He had to eat everything on his plate. Well, when we go to God's word, we need to treat it the same way, that we're going to eat everything on the plate. We need to treat all of God's word as God's word. Now, we recognize that some of it was specifically to an individual or to a specific nation, and we don't want to get confused about that. But it's all for us. It's all our food for us to eat. Then in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul had called the Ephesian elders to him where he was on the island of Malta. <clears throat> and one of the things he told them, amongst others, you can go read it, it's... Uh, Acts chapter 20, starting verse 17 and running down through verse 31. But the verse I want to point out right now is verse 27 where he says that I've been faithful to teach unto you all the counsel of God. So he trained these, these elders and he taught them from the whole word. <clears throat> he taught them to see all of God's word as a unit. Yes, it's, it's written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years, but it's all God's Word. It's all one book, and it only has one central theme. It's the person of Jesus Christ. You see him in the creation. You see him in the fall. You see him in the redemption. You see him in the book of, gloriously see him in the book of Ruth, where Boaz is a picture of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. All the way through the scripture, Jesus is the theme of the Bible, and that's the way we've got to teach it. And that's the way Jesus taught it in Luke 24. It says that he went back and retaught these disciples everything that Moses and all the prophets had had to say about him. We have to faithfully teach the whole counsel of God, and that's what I want to do. But the flock has to listen for the voice of the shepherd. If somebody comes to you claiming to be a teacher sent from God and they're not preaching the whole counsel of God or they're going astray, you need to right away back up and say, hold it, hold it. You know, this, is, this isn't the voice of God talking. I remember a pastor years and years and years ago, I was a fairly new Christian, and I had asked him, well, what about these blood sacrifices in the Old Testament? You know, the, Jesus, all we got to do is believe in him. They had to bring all these sacrifices. Well, God had a different way for them to be saved baloney no he didn't those blood sacrifices every one of them looked forward to the cross and they were saved by faith in jesus's blood same as you and me they didn't understand it necessarily job who was the earliest writer of the old testament in job chapter 19 verse 25 he says i know that my redeemer lives and that he'll stand on the earth in the last day and that i will see him in with my eye and not that of another I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. That's what Brother Job told us, told us. It's all one book. It's all one theme. It's the person of Christ. God's, God's redemptive plan for the human race. <clears throat> so when somebody is teaching, you need to be asking yourself, are they entering in by the door to the sheepfold? Or are they coming up some other way? It seems really attractive what this guy's saying. Makes God sound really nice. I like this. I think I'd like to think about God as being really nice instead of him thinking about him being holy and righteous and that he's the eternal judge and the sacrifice for my sins. There's preachers out there telling you how nice God is. Go for it if you want. 
but you're not listening to someone from God because he says that he's the holy, righteous God and that he judges sin, he hates sin, and that he loves the sinner. And he provided for the sinners by dying for them on the cross and that all he asks for us to do is to place our faith in his finished work at the cross. That's it. That's it. When we first heard his voice and followed him in faith, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, we're there in chapter 10, but we're not to verses 27 and 28, you may have noticed. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Okay, that's how we first followed him. That's how we became believers. That's how we were saved. That's where we get our security in him. But he also says for us to keep following him. You can't lose that position in Christ, but if you want to be used by God, if you want to see him working through your life to, to reach to others, then you need to keep following his voice. You need to keep going to his word and allowing his word to change your, your own life. <clears throat> We're called to follow him in faith as a daily way of life. Our lives need to be transformed by the word of God. It says he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Each of us individually are called to walk with Jesus, reading his word, praying, learning from our teachers, but always, always listening for his voice so you can't be led astray. Lord, help us to hear him clearly. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, focus our attention on your word by your spirit so that we can follow in your steps. We'd ask that you teach us to avoid the teaching and temptations of the world and to grow in strength as your disciples to be your hands and feet and voice shining your light in this dark world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. We're going to sing one more song together.